following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. If you would open up into your Bible or your Bible app into 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 5. Verse 1, we're looking at a guy whose name is Naaman, and he is on a journey with God about his identity. He's struggling with his identity, who he is, and so that's what this series is about, looking at our identity. Man, this is a rich concept that really affects every category of our lives, and seeing the journey that Naaman goes on is tremendously helpful for us. So let's learn a little bit more about this guy 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 1. Let's get reintroduced to this guy, Naaman. It says this, 2 Kings 5, 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man and was uh, with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a, what word do you see there? He was a leper. Okay, here is the tension in the story of Naaman. He is, the first word of the entire story is Naaman. It's okay, here's who this guy is. His name is Naaman, and then it gives a one-sentence description, and man, this sentence is loaded. The very first word after Naaman, the first part of the description is Naaman. The next word is commander. This guy is the commander of the Syrian army. We find out through the story he's got power, he's got position, he's got resources, he is, he's wealthy, he's connected, he's powerful, he's got everything going for him. He is a commander, and then the very last word of that first introductory sentence, it goes from commander, and then the last word is what? Leper. What's leprosy? In ancient times, leprosy is a skin disease that starts as a lesion on your skin and starts to spread all over your body. It can literally take over every square inch of your skin, and it turns your skin white. And the metaphor constantly used is white like snow. Why? Because leprosy is killing your skin, it's rotting your skin, disfiguring you all over your body, and they would describe it in terms of you looked like a walking corpse. So leprosy is pretty much the most feared disease you could have in antiquity. It is not only painful, it's not only, uh, there's no cure, it's uh, usually fatal, but at the same time, it's also socially ostracizing because they believed it to be contagious, so there were even laws in many of these societies where lepers had to live outside of the city or the village so as not to spread the contagion through the village. It may seem heartless to make them live outside the village, it was they had no other options. And so, for example, in the Old Testament law in Israel, lepers would live outside of the village or the city until they, they were healed, then they could rejoin inside. And it was just out of no other options, preservation for the rest of the society. So here's this guy, here's the tension. Naaman, he's a commander, 
everything going for him. He's probably a household name in Syria. He's accomplished. He's, he's got legendary status. He's got victories under his belt. He's got achievements. He's a commander. But he is also a leper. Now, I want you to look at the semantics very closely because this is critical to understanding this passage. Notice that it doesn't say he serves in the military in a high rank. It says he is a commander. It gives him a title. It's part of his identity. And it doesn't say he has, he's a man that has leprosy. It defines him with that. It says he is a leper. Now you say, okay, man, are you reading a little too much into it? If you watched it through the rest of the passage, every other person that refers to Naaman's leprosy um, doesn't call Naaman a leper. His servant girl, this little girl that's a servant in his house, she refers to his leprosy. The king of Syria refers to his leprosy. The king of Israel refers to his leprosy. But later when Naaman is referring to it, Naaman himself, he doesn't say his leprosy, he calls himself a leper. It's, it's, you see the tension between these two identities. Is he more commander or is he more leper? Is he full of power or is he powerless to this disease? Is he on top of the world, got everything going, or is he on a downward trajectory in life? Upward trajectory or downward? Commander or leper? That's a significant, that's a significant semantic difference. I can say, I play golf. And if you play golf, you know that could mean anything. I could shoot a 200 and say, I play golf, which is pretty close to accurate, okay? I play golf. But if I say, I am a golfer, that changes your expectations, doesn't it? You're expecting my skill level to be higher. If someone says, I am a golfer, they're saying that's part of their identity. That's actually, it's a, it's, it's a title placed on them. That's part of who they are. They're a father, they're, they're a businessman, or they're a mother and a businesswoman, and a golfer. It's like, a, it's like someone who plays music. You can play music and be terrible, but if you say, I am a musician, you're saying that's part of your identity. He doesn't just serve in the military in a certain high position. He is a commander. He doesn't just have leprosy. He is a leper. This is the battle, Naaman's battle, of what is his identity. Is he commander or leper? Top of the world or ostracized by everybody? Commander or leper? And what it looks like in this opening verse is that the final word about Naaman is he's a leper. We'll see that's not the final word. Here's what happens. Look at verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, that's the king of Syria, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. Think about this. I want you to see how desperate Naaman is. A little servant girl that works for his wife says to, to Naaman's wife, if only Mr. Naaman would go see this one prophet that's in, uh, in Israel, this prophet can cure him of his leprosy. Now I want to ask you this question. You see that Naaman is actually entertaining it. He goes to the king and says, this little girl told me this, I'm thinking about going. I want to ask you, 
How desperate would you have to be to take that little girl's advice? Well, let me just put it in today's terms. Let's say you're walking out of here, you're leaving through those doors, and out walks an eight-year-old girl from the kids' ministry. And she looks up at you and says, hey, mister, I see that skin condition that you've got. I know of this great dermatologist in Canada, and he will clear that right up. You should go travel to Canada. Most likely you'd be like, okay, thanks a lot, first of all, for just declaring about my skin condition. Run along, okay? That's most likely what would you do. How desperate would you have to be to say, okay, now what's his name again? Let me get his ad- email address. It's in Canada. Okay, we're talking Toronto. Is that where he's at? Okay. How desperate would you have to be to say, hey, honey, this little girl, eight years old, stopped me and told me about this dermatologist, could clear this all up. And I'm thinking about going. I was just on Travelocity earlier. I was looking at couple plane flights. I mean, how desperate are you to go to your boss and say, I need some vacation time. I'm traveling to Canada because a little girl told me about a dermatologist. That's pretty desperate. That's where he's at. I want you to see where this is, is wrestling between um, a leper and commander. This is how he's wrestling. Okay, And he's willing to take this little girl, this servant of his, he's going to take her input, and the kings of Syria is going to say, okay, go to Israel. He's going to go to Israel. We looked at this last week. He's going to go with this tremendous entourage. Tons of money. He's going to bring this incredible wardrobe, so he's constantly dressed like a king. He's going to bring the show of force and power with these military personnel, and he's going to come with a letter of reference from the king of Syria. He's got it all covered. Why? Because he's proving I'm more commander than leper. And he's going to say to the king of, of Israel, please cure me of my leprosy. He's not actually going to say that. The letter is going to say that. The king of Syria is going to say, please heal him of his leprosy. And the king of Israel is going to say, how could I possibly cure this man of his leprosy? Am I God? Do I, do, I cure, do I look like God that cures people of leprosy? How in the world am I going to cure this man of his leprosy? And he tears his clothes as a symbol of grief. Now look what happens next. Let's keep going with the story. Verse 8, it says this. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place, and look at this, and cure the leper. Not cure my leprosy, cure this leper. It's his identity. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Okay, he's furious. Insulted. Why? We talked about this last week. Elisha's in his house. Naaman comes rolling up, horses and chariots, his huge 
entourage, display of wealth, dressed like a king, his letters of references. He's got all this to show that he's a commander, knocks on the door. A messenger comes to the door and says, he says, I'm here to look for Elisha. The messenger goes to Elisha and says, hey, that famous guy Naaman's out front. And he says, okay, just go tell him to wash in the Jordan seven times. Doesn't even go talk to him face to face. Messenger comes back and tells him what to do. And Naaman is so insulted in the Hebrew, it's like basically saying, me, of all people, he's not coming to talk to me. He sends this messenger. That's the first thing that insults him. Of all people, he's not coming to me. And then I've got to wash in the Jordan rather than the rivers back in Damascus. This is ridiculous. Now, why is he so offended? And, and why is Elisha not coming to talk to him? Is he just kind of putting him in his place? What's going on? Elisha is probably not going to talk to him because he's doing his best to follow the Old Testament law. Old Testament law, like we talked about, a leper would need to live, someone with leprosy would need to live outside the village or outside the city, and there would need to be separation. Why? For the protection of the whole city and village, so it didn't, the contagion didn't spread. So Elisha, in an attempt to follow that law, stays inside. So he comes out to Naaman. Naaman is furious. Ultimately, what's his issue that he's so furious, so enraged? He's coming to present himself like a commander, and he's being treated like a leper. That's the debate. What's his identity? Commander or leper? He storms off. He hears he's supposed to wash in the Jordan River. He storms off, and let's see what happens. Let's pick it up in verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored. Like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So now accept, so accept now a present from your, what word do you see there? Servant. He's furious. He storms off from Elisha's house. They're on their journey back. And who is it that stops him? It's his servants. And it's interesting how they address him. I mean, watch this wording so carefully. How do they address him? They say, my, what is it? My father. What an interesting way for them to address him. They don't say, my lord. They don't say, sir. They say, my father. There's an intimacy here and as they're showing respect. My father, and they basically said, look, please just try it. Just try it. And so without another word, Naaman goes, it says he goes down to the Jordan and he has to watch, wash seven times. Don't you love that it's seven whole times? It's not just one time, you know, so he could make it look like an accident. He's like, I'm not doing that. Oops, oh, I fell in. Let's see what happens. Oh, you know, it's not like that. Seven whole times in the Jordan. 
Don't you love that? He has to take off his clothes, maybe just has his one undergarment on, and he goes down. And, and don't you want to see like how that actually went down? Was it like oh, the first time and well, it's actually a little better. And then he and he's like, gets more momentum, or did God stretch it out? So it's nothing until the sixth time. Okay, it's like the sixth time. He's like, I'm not doing this. And he starts to go out, and his servants are like, get back in there. Okay, one more time. And he goes down, and then it's the seventh time, and it's like perfect. Now, it says very specifically, his flesh was restored. What does it say? Did you catch the wording? Restored like what? Like a child's. Isn't that beautiful? Completely restored like that of a child. And what is his instinct to do? I mean, who knows what kind of cheering or, or what they, that happened on the shore, but his next instinct is he goes back to Elisha, the one thing on his mind. He doesn't say, man, that's an incredible trick. Does that work for anyone in the Jordan? Because I'm going to start sending my friends down here. I know some other people with leprosy. That's not what, what's on his mind. He's not like, dude, you are a miracle worker. You're incredible. Or he's not like, let me tell you, the fifth time nothing happened, the sixth time, but the seventh time, that's not what is on his mind. One thing is on his mind. Your God, the God of Israel, is the God. And then he says this. Look at his reflex. Please, let me give you a gift. And he says, let me give you a gift. And he says, a gift from your, and the very last word of the entire passage that we're looking at, what's the last word? Servant. Let me give you a gift as your servant. Now I want you to look very closely because the trajectory of Naaman is incredible. The whole debate is, is he a commander or a leper? And it looks like the final word is that he is a leper. It's the last word of that first sentence. And so you're saying, what's it going to be? And if, you've, if you've, you're anticipating, he's probably going to be cured. So you're expecting that the real final word is going to be commander. But that's not the final word about him, is it? His actual trajectory is not commander or leper, it's servant. I want you to notice, did you notice that twice Naaman has to take advice from his servants? In the beginning, it's this servant girl, and he has to take her counsel, submit to her counsel, lower himself to receiving her counsel, the counsel of his servant. And then the second time, it's his servants yet again that are like, come on, man, you can do this. Twice he has to lower himself beneath his servants and take their counsel. There's a trajectory here from commander the first word to servant the last word, taking the counsel of his servants twice. But that's not the only transition. Did you notice what his servants referred to him as? They called him father. What an interesting thing. If he's their, um, figuratively, if he's their father, then that makes them the children. That, make, that means that twice he's had to receive the counsel of children, one literal, one figurative. The servant at the beginning of the story was a child. He had to lower himself to take the advice of a child. The second time they refer to him as father, that means figuratively they're children, and, and he has to lower himself to take the counsel of his children. And then look what happens in the story. The verse says, they call him my father, and in the very next verse, it says his skin was restored like a 
child. He's going from commander to servant, from father to child. I want you to consider that trajectory for a second. Commander down to servant, father down to child. That's really counterintuitive for our culture, isn't it? We use words like upwardly mobile, climbing the ladder of success or the social ladder or the economic ladder. We talk about, I wish I had a higher position in the company. I wish I was over more people. Our instinct is that the trajectory of our life, the trajectory of greatness and the trajectory of success is upward. But look at Naaman's trajectory. It's from commander to servant, father to child. Naaman's trajectory is downward. It's completely counterintuitive. It's upside down. So wait a minute, what's this passage telling us? Is it saying that healing, like our goal, like our trajectory should be downward? Like should I want to be downwardly mobile? Like is that what I should want? You know, what's interesting is that this is not the only time this theme is in Scripture. Like, I want to just read, I don't want you to turn there, I just want you to hear this. I want you to hear the words of Jesus. Let me just read this to you out of Mark chapter 9. Hear these words. This is what it says, Mark 9 verse 30. As Jesus is walking with his disciples, this is what happens. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, this is what he said, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now look what they think. And they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This is one of the many times Jesus pulls his disciples together and says this ahead of time. He says, okay, I just need to prepare you. You guys know that I'm going to die, right? I want you to know ahead of time, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of the religious leaders. And sometimes he's even talking about pointing to crucifixion. I'm going to suffer greatly. You realize that's going to happen. In fact, I love what these verses show is that was the plan. He's telling them ahead of time because that's the reason he came. He came, watch, down from heaven. Then on earth, but even as a human, down to be humiliated He's going to have his clothes stripped from him. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be beaten. He's going to have a crown of thorns jammed down on his head. He's going to be whipped within an inch of his life. Then he's going to be nailed to a cross and he's going to suffer and die publicly humiliated. He's going down. The author of life is going down to death. And then he'll be raised on the third day. He's explained all of this ahead of time because that was his purpose. That was the trajectory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But what does it say? They didn't understand it and they were even afraid to ask. It was so far from their expectations because like every one of us, their instinct is an upward trend. They thought he's going to become king. He's going to overthrow Romans or whatever. They're expecting an upward trend and he's trying to say it's a downward trend. You say, are you sure the disciples are not getting this? Look how badly they're not getting this. Look at the next verse, verse 33. 
And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must, he must be last of all. And what's that word? Servant of all. And he took a what? A child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Do you see what's happening? The disciples are following the trend of every other part of the world in every other society, expecting an upward trend. They're debating who's the greatest. Now, this is a little especially awkward because it's one thing to think you're the greatest. It's another thing to out loud debate the guy next to you, telling him, no, I'm the greatest, clearly. Okay, that's a whole nother situation. And so when they get to Capernaum, he says, guys, come here. Don't you understand that I'm making everything upside down? You want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to be greatest, you need to be the servant. If you want a servant, not just of those you respect, servant of all. You not only need to be servant, he says, let me give you another metaphor, not just servant, one other metaphor, he pulls a child. And this is, he's done this metaphor with them before. He's told them, you have to have faith like a child. But in this case, he takes this child up in his arms. This is incredible. It's anyone who receives a child in my name, they get it. Why? It's one thing to serve someone who's got connections for you. It's one thing to serve someone that can help advance your career or you can get some, but a child is just an act of love and service. He has two metaphors, a servant and a child, and he's telling them two, two things that you need to, tra- to have as your trajectory, and it's the same two things as Naaman. Isn't that fascinating? Become a servant become like a child. Here's what this means. If you have Jesus, it turns everything upside down. Your trajectory is no longer, should no longer be upward, but downward. It's no longer trying to become commander. It's trying to become servant. It's no longer trying to become father. It's trying to become child. You say, how does that work? It works like this. It's got nothing to do with your outward trajectory, everything to do with your inward trajectory. If you could put it like this, you could write it down in one sentence. Your outward trajectory has no bearing on your inward trajectory. Let me me say it like this. Maybe right now you say your outward trajectory is great. Things are going well. I'm getting promotions. Uh, My relationships are going well. Economically, things are going well. I am on an upward trend. Great, there's nothing wrong with that. But what's happening inward? Is that also your inward trend? So as you are moving higher up on the ladder, you think higher of yourself? The more people you are positionally over, are those the same people you now look down on? Because your outward trajectory and inward trajectory are completely different. Or are you saying now, with every new position that I have been given, I will use it to serve and raise up the people around me? Or maybe it's the opposite. Right now you're in a season where you're saying, I am outwardly in a downward trajectory. 
things are falling apart. I just a relationship just fell apart, or a, a job situation fell apart, or things. I'm on a downward trajectory. That should have no bearing on your inward trajectory because what can happen is the same thing that's happening to Naaman. He's on a downward trajectory from commander to leper, and so he's trying to display, no, I'm not this. I'm I'm like I was like right here, and so I can leverage all I have to prove that I'm not this. And I can expect everyone around me, because I'm going through a tough time, everyone should be serving me and taking care of my needs. Or I can say, even though outwardly I'm on a downward trajectory, I am still looking for, for a way to serve anyone around me. Now, why does Jesus turn all of that upside down? Because when you see him on the cross, you're seeing the most precious being in the history of of the universe, the Son of God. And you're seeing the most precious substance in the history of the universe, the blood of Jesus running down his body. And when you understand the gospel, you realize God and Jesus, God himself, the Son of God, Jesus, did that for me. Do you understand what that bloodied figure on the cross says about you? It says that God, your creator, who intimately knows everything about you, he knows every word you've spoken, every thought that you've had run through your mind, he knows every success, every failure, he's been with you at your best and at your worst, he's seen you at your most glorious and at your ugliest, he's been with you at every second, he made you and he looks down and he says, you are so precious to me that I cannot stand the idea of spending eternity without you, so I will sacrifice the greatest thing in history, the son of God himself on a cross, he will suffer so that I can have you. Do you realize your value when you look at the cross? You could not have a greater value. You are the most precious thing in the universe to the most glorious being in the universe. He looks and says, I love you and I'm offering this to you because you are my precious child. And when we look at the cross, we realize there is no longer debate. I'm no longer wrestling. Am I commander or am I leper? I don't have that debate anymore. I know who I am. I know what my identity is. I, I am precious in the sight of the only being that matters, God Almighty. Your identity has been sealed because of Jesus Christ. And he rose again from the dead saying you are something brand new. You are a new creation. The most precious thing in the universe. There's no more debate. The verdict is in. So when internally the verdict is in, why am I still wrestling with who I am? It's not commander or leper anymore. It's neither. It's something completely new. It's a child, completely new. And now that my identity is established and sealed forever, now I can just use my life to lift up those around me because I don't have to worry about trying to lift myself up. I can just serve those around me. Tim Keller in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, put it like this. This is so profound. Look how he said it. He said this, Gospel-centered, put it like this, 
I'll have to read it. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more, okay, more of myself or thinking less of myself. Watch this. It's not, humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. I don't, I'm not obsessed anymore trying to wonder, well, what do they think about me? Or what do they think about me? Or what did this say about me? Did I say the wrong thing? Did I say the right thing? I don't care. That's already been established. I know who I am in Jesus Christ. I'm not obsessed with myself anymore. I can just go around and now be busy and obsessed with serving and lifting up everyone around me. Do you see how that works? Your identity is sealed. Now, there's two practical things I want to play this out that happens to Naaman. Watch how this works. It's incredible. Two practical things that happen to Naaman. First is he's teachable. Did you notice that? He has to learn from a ser servants and children. Why? He's not any more threatened by that. That, in the end, is not going to have any play on his identity. He can be taught and learn from anyone. So let me ask you this diagnostic question of your heart. Who is it that you are not willing to learn from? Because our, we're all willing to learn from experts. Of course, they're above me. I can learn from them. But who am I not willing to learn from? That tells me that I think I'm above them. Who, am it that I, who is it that I'm not willing to receive criticism from? I'm not willing to see pushback from. Who is it that I'm always defensive if they try? Is it a family member? Is it a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a child? Is it someone at work? Is it someone I outrank? If my identity is sealed in Jesus, I am not threatened by criticism and feedback. Even if it comes from an enemy, I'm like, oh, this might be helpful. Why? Because my self-esteem, it's not still in debate. I know who I am. Here's the second one, and this one catches you really off guard. You know what a natural instinct of having your identity sealed? It's generosity. Why that? Did you notice that in this passage? He comes with all of this money to see Elisha. Why? He's trying to pay for his healing. Elisha doesn't need any of it. He just says, go wash in the Jordan. I don't even need to talk to this guy. So all of his money, he cannot purchase his healing. But then he goes, washes in the Jordan, becomes well, has his mind on God, comes back to Elisha and says, I'm your servant. Can I give you a gift? I want you to see what's transpired. Before he was trying to pay for something to get it, trying to get something with his, with his wealth, but now he has nothing left to get. It's nothing to purchase. So now it's just a gift. Here's the question when it comes to our finances. Until our identity is sealed, we will use our finances to try and purchase our identity. We'll try and purchase an identity of looking good, looking successful, looking wealthy. We'll use our finances to try and purchase an identity for ourselves on the other side of having my identity sealed because of Jesus Christ. Now my finances are just used to serve. But watch out, because sometimes we can use our finances to give to our church, an organization, someone in need to purchase the identity of a generous person, or a good person, or a good Christian or a godly person. When your identity is sealed, we simply say, God, how can I serve with my resources? You know, today is um, 
Mobilization Sunday. It's a key part of our rhythm as a church where we talk about how we can use our lives on God's mission to serve this world and take the message of, of, of God, the message of salvation out to the world. And one of those key ways is through sponsoring children. There's three organizations that we partner with to sponsor children, Compassion International. Um, there, are, there are children you can sponsor from all over the world. There's in Burkina Faso, there is a, an orphanage in a school called Sheltering Wings. There are some school children and some children who have been orphaned that you can, you can uh, sponsor. And also there's um, Haiti Hope Alliance. And there's something cool happening with this organization in Haiti. There is an orphanage in a part of, of Haiti in a region called Sodu that we've been able to rebuild a relationship with. It's an orphanage with 18 children. Currently, none of those children, uh, before today, actually, none of those children were sponsored. And we kind of said to um, Haiti Hope Alliance, give West Pines the first crack at it because we would like to completely adopt this organization and sponsor it completely. There were 18 um, and one of the consequences of not coming to the 9 o'clock service is already 11 of those have been sponsored, so you only have seven left, okay? And so we said, what if West Pines just adopted this entire orphanage? And so I wanted to just, one of your opportunities to sponsor is this village in Sodu, but I want to give you a little introduction to uh, this orphanage. Check it out. today, none of those children had a, had a sponsor, and now today, 11 of them have been sponsored. There's seven more. Be the first to get out there because we want West Pines to engulf this orphanage. Also, maybe there's your heart is there's other places around the world through Compassion International, Sheltering Wings. Please take, take a look at those tables as well. Now, why? Why is that a fit to this name and story? Why? Because something happens to our finances and our resources when our identity is secured. It's just irrelevant to spend it to prove anything. But now we can use it to serve those and raise them up. You say, well, how does that happen? I want you to see this one last video. It's through the other, one of the other organizations we partner with. It's out of, by compassion. And it's, it's an actual just real um, video of this uh, mom and dad and their daughter when they find out for the first time that they've been selected to be sponsored. Check out this video. Tuhan akan memberikan yang terbaik buat keluarga ini. Ada sukacita, asti. Keluarganya Asti mendapat sponsor dan ini surat dari sponsor yang buat Asti. 
terima kasih banyak bawa anak saya baik saya kasih masuk PPA saya hari ini saya bangga sekali tapi Tuhan yang balas saya tidak mampu balas tapi Tuhan yang balas tidak pernah saya mimpi bahwa sponsornya Aki hari ini ada tapi saya bangga sekali sehingga saya jatuh air mata terima kasih banyak berlimpah-limpah mereka anak-anak itu merasa dekat dengan sponsornya dan jadi ketika mereka Can you think of a better a better way to leverage your life than taking a small child and saying do you realize how much you're loved? you hear her mom say, I don't feel like we deserve to be blessed like this? Don't you want to be the one that say, yes. Yes, you are. Don't you know how much your father, God, your creator, how much he loves you? Because he, God has settled your identity, can you think of anything better than to spend your life sending that message throughout the world? Don't you know how precious you are? before God. Don't you know the great cost he went to so that he gets the privilege of spending eternity with you because of Jesus? Church, may we be hearing what Jesus said, be the servant of all. He says, if you receive one of these children in my name, he says, you get it. May we as a church, set the tone and answer that call and say, Jesus, you have served us. You have shown us our value. We will spend our lives showing children and those who are far from you around the world, we will show them your love. So today, here's your challenge. It's real practical. As you're wrestling with the fact that your identity has been sealed, you're precious, so significant, so valuable. Respond by helping another child know how valuable they are. Go check out one of those, those tables, see those packets, you'll see different types. You'll see children that live with their parents, but they're in poverty, and it's something like $35, $38 can get them education, can get them medical attention, can, can get them food, can help them learn about Jesus and their Creator. Others are in a different situation. They've been orphaned, and so you can, you can invest to take care of all of their care. Obviously, now they're housing and, and all of their food, and so that's something like $100, $140, depending on the different context. And let's go out as a church saying, Jesus, you've sealed their identity. Now let's show the world who their identity is before you. You might be here and you might be saying, look, if I'm honest, I've been pinballed between commander and leper all of my life, but I want to show you, you know, there's one more trajectory shift in Naaman's life. He was a leper, his flesh was like a corpse, and then he came out on the other side of the Jordan and his flesh was like a little child, like he had been a brand new newborn. So he not only gone commander to servant, father to child, he went corpse to newborn. You know what Jesus says in John chapter 3? He tells one guy named Nicodemus, he says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom 
of God. Maybe you're here today and you say, look, I just need a fresh start. Then can I encourage you today what you may need, I just, you just need to be born again into a new identity. Jesus says, you are now a new creation. You say, I want that. It starts with putting your faith in Jesus that what he did on the cross saves you once and for all, washes away your sins. If you want to be born again today, you can do that right now. I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, just right there in your seat, in your heart, between you and God, just pray this prayer in your heart. Say, God, thank you for loving me that much, for finding me that valuable that Jesus sacrificed his life for me. Thank you for sealing my identity, for forgiving my sins, overlooking my failures, but also washing them clean and giving me a new identity as your child. Thank you for saving me. I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.